Welcome to the Chemist and Druggist CPD podcast. I'm CPD and Clinical Editor Christopher Stewart. This week, I'll be covering travel health, specifically taking a look at antimalarials, how to protect against mosquitoes, and the Zika virus. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Dawood. He's a medical director at Fleet Street Clinic and specialist in travel medicine. Um, can you tell me a bit about your previous experience? Well, I've been working in uh, travel medicine pretty much all my life, initially as a hobby and then uh, as a full-time specialist in travel medicine at the Fleet Street Clinic here in London. I began with an interest, an obsessive interest in travel, even in my medical student days. So as I went through medical school, I was kind of primed from the things that I'd seen on my travels in Asia and Africa and Latin America for all of the conditions, the interesting medical conditions that I'd seen to suddenly somehow be revealed to me during my medical education. And because that didn't happen, I then went on to study tropical medicine and to uh, explore different areas of uh, travel medicine as much to satisfy my own curiosity as for any other reason. And so over time, it's, you know, over time more recently, it has evolved into uh, more of a full-blooded specialty in its own right. What sort of developments have there seen since when you were traveling to now when you go out? Oh, goodness. Well, I mean, there have been huge developments uh, at every level. You know, firstly, if you think about vaccines, uh, in my day as a student traveling in Asia, for example, uh, the only protection against hepatitis A was an injection of the gamma globulin. So it was other people's antibody put into a large syringe and injected into your bottom, uh, which was painful and also quite short acting, not more than really about three months of effect. So several of my contemporaries ended up with hepatitis A simply from going abroad to work for longer than three months. So vaccines, medicines, we have new newer antimalarials such as uh, atovaquone, proguanil, malarone. We've got a much better understanding of personal precautions and how to protect oneself. Uh, we've got a much higher level of knowledge and information and advice and we can really put uh, the traveller very much in control of their own health when they go abroad. And we've got much better ways of keeping in touch with people when they are traveling. So these days, if somebody does get sick abroad, they can be in touch with us on their smartphone. They can send us pictures. We can interact with them in real time and uh, support them. And of course, much better diagnostics for when people come back. Firstly, I wanted to ask just how antimalarials actually work and do they provide complete cover for those who are taking them? Well, no antimalarial is... 100% 100% effective, but most of them are, you know, they are effective up in the 90s uh, percentage wise. There are three main antimalarial medicines in common use, and these are doxycycline, mefloquine, and atovacone proguanil. Each of them works in more than one way. Um, effectively, they target the metabolism of the malaria parasite. Um, doxycycline is believed to target intracellular uh, organelles in the malaria parasite. Mefloquine targets the 
internal metabolism, particularly involving the heme molecules, so the breakdown of uh, the digestion of uh, red blood cells by the parasite. So effectively, the parasite dies of, dies of iron poisoning and Atovaquone proguanil malarone contains two drugs that work synergistically, that work uh, together to attack um, the internal um, metabolism, particularly the mitochondria in the malaria parasite. So they all have slightly different ways of working. Each drug works in more than one way. Um, The main difference in practical terms is that malarone also provides what's called causal prophylaxis. So what that means is that it works at the time when the malaria parasite is uh, injected into the bloodstream by the uh, biting mosquito uh, before it goes into hiding in the liver. And that's why you can stop taking malarone much sooner after returning home than with other drugs which must be continued for four weeks afterwards to allow all of the parasites to emerge from the liver stages into the bloodstream. So malarone targets both ends, if you like, the early stages when just after being bitten, as well as the blood stages, whereas doxycycline and mefloquine only really uh, are effective uh, on the blood stages. You mentioned doxycycline there, and I'm aware that there is concerns around doxycycline and some damage. Obviously, whenever you're going to countries where you might need malaria prophylaxis, they tend to be warmer countries anyway. Does that in any way interfere with the prescribing of doxycycline? Well, I think, you know, there is still uh, an art to picking the right drug for the right person. The problem that you mentioned with photosensitivity affects many drugs. In the case of doxycycline, about 3% of people who take doxycycline seem to be susceptible to a photosensitive reaction. And that is off, you know, to, to the point where the drug actually needs to be discontinued. So it is important for anyone taking it to be aware of the problem and to be able to have some kind of plan B, because if you have to stop taking uh, an antimalarial medicine when you're still at risk, that that does potentially cause quite a problem. So I think there does need to be a backup plan, uh, a way for people to get further advice and to be able to change horses if they need to. You were saying about sort of catering for the individual, but whenever you someone comes into the pharmacy and they ask about what will they need, sort of different areas have different, you know, anti-malarial regimens. How often does this change and why does it have to change? Well, our thinking does evolve over time. You know, there there are certainly changing patterns of drug resistance. In fact, it's not too complicated. The things that are changing at the moment are more along the lines of parts of the world where the risk of malaria is actually reducing. Um, in the rest of the in, in in the rest of the world, where there, where malaria is present, one has to generally operate on the basis that it's going to be chloroquine resistant, and in most of those places. Uh, either malarone, doxycycline, or mefloquine will be effective. So the uh, malaria is spread primarily by mosquitoes. So how can people avoid being bitten by mosquitoes? So the key to prevention is to use both antimalaria medication and insect 
uh, by prevention. Now, th- there's something else which I'll come back to, which is the use of standby medication. But essentially, if you've got a malaria drug that is, let's say, 95%, 97% effective, the way of dealing with the, you know, the missing 5%, the 5% gap or the 3% gap in effectiveness is to use careful inset precautions. And with careful inset precautions, you can pretty much eliminate 90% of mosquito bites. So you can actually reduce the risk of getting malaria to a very, very low level indeed. So the, the, the key steps are covering up not exposing vast areas of skin to biting insects, um, using insect repellent, preferably containing DEET, which is by far the most effective uh, repellent um, on exposed skin and on clothing, um, and protecting yourself particularly at night with either uh, a mosquito net or some kind of insect killer during the night. So it could be a plug-in insect killer uh, emitting a vapour in the room. Um, That's particularly effective if you are in a screened and air-conditioned room where mosquitoes can't get in during the night. So if the the plug-in killer is working correctly, all flying insects will be knocked down. Or if you're outdoors or if you're in in a room where mosquitoes can enter during the night, you need to be under a properly impregnated mosquito net. Other things you can use outdoors include mosquito coils, uh, which again are quite effective in reducing the number of bites. And this is particularly important, you know, nighttime or dusk biting is particularly important from from the point of view of malaria transmission. There are other insects that will spread disease that bite during the day uh, or at any point in the day. Uh, and that includes the mosquitoes that spread dengue, for example, or chikungunya, uh, the, the vast number of other uh, insects, insect-borne viruses that there are. But malaria protection particularly requires protection at dusk and during the night. You said um, DEET you know, is the best thing to spray a DEET or a cream of DEET. What percentage is recommended? Because you can buy them in you know, different strengths. Well, there's a lot of, I would say, misinformation about... DEET concentrations. The truth is the concentration of DEET doesn't really matter. A lower concentration of DEET is simply 100% DEET mixed with alcohol. So it's it's a dilution and you can apply 100% DEET sparingly and get exactly the same effect as you would if you applied 30% or 20% DEET more copiously. So I think if you explain to travellers not to absolutely slather on uh, you know, masses of 100% DEET over every pore of their skin um, and get them to use it uh, intelligently. It really doesn't matter. I personally favour higher concentrations because they're more compact to travel with, but you do need to make sure that people don't get them in eyes, mouth, nose, ears, uh, and anywhere else that's a bit sensitive. Um, and apply sparingly and particularly apply to clothing because what you really want to do is to create the smell of DEET uh, around you to to deter mosquitoes from biting you. DEET is not an absolute deterrent. When mosquitoes are are really hungry, they'll they'll bite anything. If you're around other people who aren't using a mosquito repellent and you've got lots of DEET on board, 
uh, they will bite other people rather than you. But essentially, mosquitoes do need to feed in order to complete their life cycle. And just as humans will eat rather unappetizing food at times when they're very hungry, uh, mosquitoes will bite despite repellents if you, if you are the only meal in town. You mentioned the nets and that they are impregnated to sort of ward off um, mosquitoes. What, what is that impregnated with? So mosquito nets are impregnated with permethrin, which is a, not, which is a contact killer for flying insects. And they work very effectively um, and they've been used with enormous success in malaria campaigns around the world. And essentially they work um, along the principle of a baited trap. So humans are strongly attractive to mosquitoes and when there is a mosquito net in the way they come into contact with the net and they're killed by the insecticide and that can dramatically reduce the population of malaria-bearing mosquitoes in entire villages. So it, it, it's definitely worth doing if you're sleeping uh, in a sort of rural or outdoor setting. I was just wondering, are people sometimes just predisposed to bites? So I've been on holiday in Malaysia, and one of my friends covered in bites, and both of us applied the deep before we you know, went to bed or went out during the day, and I'd be fine, and, and she wouldn't. People differ in two counts. They differ in their allure, their attractiveness to <laughs> mosquitoes, and you see this particularly in pregnancy, for example. Uh, some people are much more attractive to mosquitoes and during pregnancy, the uh, attraction seems to rise, but also people differ in the reaction that they have to bites. So you certainly get people who are being bitten who hardly know it. So I, I never believe people when they tell me that they've not been bitten or that you know one person gets, you know. So in uh, fact, I was just bitten but just didn't react. Like yeah, my... it's, it's possible. It, it is possible. So when somebody comes along and they have symptoms that raise the possibility of malaria, the fact that they tell you that they haven't been bitten is no is is not a good guide to knowing whether you need to investigate further. So when someone's traveling, is there general rules for eating and drinking to sort of prevent any infections or diseases? Absolutely. So uh, again, people differ in their ability to follow rules, and there've been lots of studies that show that you know. Lots of people who think they're taking very careful precautions um, may, may end up, well, either aren't or may end up just as sick as people who uh, you know, are ignore, ignoring uh, all risks. But the, the, there are some general principles to follow, particularly with food and water hygiene. So the principles are careful selection of food. There are Definitely some things that are some foods that are much more prone to contamination than others. A good rule is that food should be heat sterilized before being eaten, uh, raised to a high temperature immediately before being eaten. That's really the safest option. The you know more riskier foods that are set out some time in advance and left to incubate for a long time at room temperature. Buffet foods in hot countries are really very risky. And then you have to consider the fact that in a buffet setting, everybody will be handling, you know, serving implements. And, and so the, there are 
huge possibilities for contamination. And so really the best food is cooked to order and served hot. And in a way that sometimes goes against the grain because we think of food, some foods as being healthy, salads, fresh um, produce, things like that, compared with a plate of chips, for example. Um, you know, so chips straight from the, from the, the, the pan really a safe option but maybe not what most people would regard as healthy eating same with tap water in in most hot countries maybe unsafe so bottled water from a freshly you know from a freshly opened bottle and avoiding things like ice so that so those are some of the basic principles but it's not just about the food and the water it's also about what you do with your hands lots of people will um at many points in their journey, contaminate um, their food with dirty hands and hands that, you know, they may be, they, they may look clean, but they may be, you know, if you think about the journey through an airport, how many times you handle things that uh, may be unclean, you're taking your shoes off for x-ray, scanning through security, uh, you're handling handles on buses uh, and and you know, shuttles in the airport, taxis, luggage, these are things that come into contact with the ground um, and with lots of other people. And you get on board a plane and the first thing that happens is that somebody gives you uh, a meal, uh, an, an, an aircraft, an airline meal that you then handle with dirty hands. So the possibilities for contamination are endless. And I think it is a good principle to travel where possible with wipes or uh, hand sanitizer to make sure that they that every time you touch food or you bring your hand up to your mouth your hands are clean you mentioned sort of the dangers using um, some companies tap water and ice so what about when you're showering um, i know i want to put my head under because when i'm on holiday i'm yes. warm and sweaty i want to wash it all off I think it depends where you are and whether or not there is a chlorinated supply and what the what the circumstances are, but you definitely do need to be aware of uh, not letting water into your mouth, brushing teeth with bottled water and swimming in some countries as well. You know, there, there can be a real risk if, if, if the water is not properly chlorinated. So whenever um, an individual comes to your tropical clinic and you set them up with medication, or like vaccinations, etc. What do they do about medication they're already on for a chronic condition? Say, what are the rules for traveling abroad with your own medication? Well, I think if there's anything remotely um, potentially controversial, um, it's important to make sure that it's well documented, properly labeled, prescription with you, making sure you've got an adequate supply and you're not going to run out making sure that there's a supply perhaps both in hand luggage for anything that's truly essential, asthma medication, for example, things like that, uh, with a backup supply in your checked luggage. There are particular countries that are known to be very, let's say, overzealous or, or, <laughs> or, or uh, aggressive in, in the way they handle certain medicines. The medicines that most often give trouble are pain medications, anything that contains opiates, and also anything that 
let's say, anything for erectile dysfunction in certain parts of the Middle East. So we, see, we definitely see uh, people wanting to enter problems with, with those. I, I think if you're traveling with medicines, it's a good idea that they should be in what looks like a medical kit or a medical uh, looking bag. Everything should be very clearly labeled and in its original container so that there's no doubt uh, in, any mind, in anybody's minds what it actually is and careful research and discussion with your doctor before you go. Um, I just wanted to ask you a bit about the Zika virus. It's currently in the headlines. For me, I don't remember studying it or seeing it at university. And I just sort of wonder, sort of, what is it? Where it came from? So Zika is the most recent of uh, a multitude of so-called arboviruses to be causing trouble. There are many arthropod-borne viruses. Um, everybody's perhaps heard of yellow fever. Um, there's dengue, there's chikungunya, and, and many, many others, West Nile in, in recent years. And I'm sure that there will be more in future that come to prominence. Zika was first discovered in uh, 1947 in Uganda uh, in the Zika forest, which is how it got its name. And it was discovered uh, by yellow fever researchers who were looking at mosquitoes in the upper reaches of the tree canopy. And what they did was they put um, a caged monkey at high level in the tree canopy and the monkey developed a fever and they found that its blood contained a transmissible component that was capable of killing mice. No human cases were identified at that time, but antibody studies later showed that there was some presence in Africa and later on in the in French Polynesia. But nothing really uh, came to note until 2014-2015, so that the first recorded cases in Brazil were in May 2015, and gradually the number of cases increased, but initially this were, they were cases of um, a fever, a rash, joint pains, conjunctivitis, what was felt to be a fairly minor illness that was similar to chikungunya and to dengue fever certainly nothing that appeared to be lethal or dangerous. Now, the really unexpected feature of Zika virus was uh, to follow when it became clear that there was a big increase in the number of uh, cases where women gave birth to babies with either no brain, anencephaly, or a very small head malformed or reduced brain size microcephaly and this has been particularly seen in northern Brazil but it has been seen elsewhere in South America and the number of countries where the virus has spread to is constantly increasing and there's every reason to believe that it will spread along exactly the same pattern as was seen um, you know, a couple of years ago with chikungunya and has been seen as well with dengue fever, where this virus spreads to the uh, geographic distribution of the ED's mosquitoes that uh, transmit the virus. 
So it is very alarming, and uh, it, it's alarming because of the many things that we still don't know about it. The WHO, the World Health Organization, recently declared this to be a public health emergency of international importance. What's interesting is that the committee that reached that decision said that just as in the previous health emergency with Ebola, they declared that emergency because of what they knew about Ebola. In this particular instance, they've declared an emergency because of what they don't know. So we don't know how strong the link is between the Zika virus itself and the fetal abnormalities that it causes. We don't know at what points in, pre- in the pregnancy the fetus is vulnerable. We, we don't know if there are any other factors that may be responsible for the fact that there seem to be more fetal anomalies occurring in Brazil than, say, in Colombia. So there, there are lots of unknowns, but what we do know is that this is a pretty serious situation that is going to require some very careful uh, research and a huge effort to find ways of combating it. And the, and the, the main ways are going to be through public health measures, mosquito control, that there's a lot of uh, hope resting on, uh, for example, production of genetically modified mosquitoes that could be very uh, species-specific in getting rid of the, the main EDs vector. Use of insecticides, we may well find that we have to fall back on DDT, for example, which was hugely successful in the 60s in, in uh, eliminating malaria mosquito populations, and of course vaccine research and development. So currently, I'm correct in saying there is no treatment and no vaccine? There's no vaccine. We're, we're starting pretty much from scratch, except for the fact that there are, you know, the, the resources within the, in the pharmaceutical industry have been upgraded lately by things like the recent Ebola crisis. So I think the pharmaceutical companies are much better placed to develop new vaccines more speedily than than in the past. There's no current antiviral drug that's suitable, and there's a lot of work that's going to need to be done. I mean, if you look back at rubella, when, when, when I was a child, there was no vaccine against rubella. People used to have rubella parties to infect young girls, uh, <laughs> you, you know, with, with a minor illness that that everybody knew caused very nasty abnormalities during, during pregnancy. It took a whole generation to wipe out rubella in pregnancy. Well, we've got to do that on a fast track basis now with uh, a potentially very unpleasant virus like Zika. Should travellers be concerned about travelling to this area? Yes, absolutely. So the um, I think the, the key is to be aware of which countries have Zika and which don't. With the Ebola crisis, there are a lot of people who decided not to travel to southern Africa, which is which was as far from West Africa where the where the Ebola crisis actually was as London is. So one has to be rational about making choices. I've just come back from Argentina and Chile. I know people who cancelled trips to Argentina and Chile. There is no, you know, as we speak, there is no internal transmission of Zika virus. They've got imported 
cases, just as we have in the UK. So, so that any decisions need to be based on you know clear information. And at the moment, there's very good surveillance of, of, of Zika virus. I I think that the actual advice for travellers is going to evolve uh, as our understanding improves. Currently, the advice would be not to go to Zika-infected areas if you are pregnant or trying to conceive. Can the Zika virus be spread between individuals opposed to just being through mosquito bites? It has the potential to be, well, it is a blood-borne illness. So it is spread from person to person via mosquitoes that draw blood. And equally, it's possible to short-circuit that process. Uh, It appears to be possible to short-circuit that process um, via blood-borne transmission, via body fluids, so potentially via blood transfusion or sexual transmission, Yes, this is a, a possibility that one has to be clear about. That was Dr. Richard Dawood from the Fleet Street Travel Clinic discussing travel health. For more Chemists and Druggists CPD podcasts, keep an eye out on our Chemists and Druggists website or follow us on Twitter at Chemists and Druggists.